0: Ontology both doesn't account, like it it fails on two fronts, like not to account for the relational structure of the production of subjects and the historical structure of it and then the element of subjective freedom. Yeah. So it's bad. Yeah. So it's bad. No bueno. No bueno. Yeah, it doesn't take much to convince me that ontology is not good, but... (laughs)
1: Left to philosophy. I'm Will. Here with me today is Lillian. Hi. Gil. Hello. And Owen. Hey. Today we are discussing Franz Fanon's book, Black Skin, White Masks, published in 1952. Born in 1925 and died in 1961, Fanon wore many hats throughout his short life. He was a philosopher, dramatist, psychiatrist, and of course, political revolutionary. And, as you will see, these multiple facets of Fanon are key for understanding black skin, white masks. Fanon was born on the island of Martinique, while it was still under French colonial rule. I think many of our listeners probably know Fanon as the revolutionary author of The Wretch of the Earth that was published in 1961. He feverishly raced to finish it as he knew he was dying from leukemia. But Fanon did not start out as a critic of France or French colonialism. He enlisted in the Free French Forces to fight in World War II because, as he will narrate elsewhere, he felt compelled to fight for the freedom of humanity. Fanon fought in the Battle of Alsace and was wounded in Comar. After the end of the war, he received the Croix de Guerre. I bring Fanon's World War II experience for two reasons. First. There's a tendency to read Fanon's thought as moving from the phase of striving for recognition, found in black Skin, white masks, to the phase of revolutionary violence when he arrives in Algeria during the revolution against France in the text, The Wretch of the Earth. But Fanon was no stranger to the reality of violence even when he was young. And the violence of World War II, as Jean-Paul Sartre will comment, was formative for this generation. As early as black skin, you can find the thematic of violence and revolutionary struggle throughout the book. The second reason I mention his experience in World War II is because it was also formative for Fanon's consciousness of racism. There are two key moments that shaped him. First, when France fell to the Nazis in 1940, French sailors were blockaded on Martinique and overthrew the government to erect the collaborationist Vichy regime. Fanon recounts his experience as a traumatic awareness of the racism that French people harbored towards the black and brown people of the island. There are complaints of harassment and sexual misconduct from Martinican residents about the French sailors. Fanon ended up fleeing Martinique as a dissident. And then second, the end of the war confronted Fanon with a wider phenomenon of European racism when his regiment was purged of black soldiers when journalists came to take photographs. I think it is experiences like these that led Fanon to claim in one of my personal favorite essays of his, Racism and Culture, quote, a society has race prejudice or it has not. There are no degrees of prejudice. One cannot say that a given country is racist, but that lynchings or extermination camps are not found there. The truth is that all and still other things exist on the horizon. These virtualities, these latencies circulate, Carried by the life stream of psychoeffective economic relations. Quote. These two experiences—the necessity of struggle and the reality of racism—shaped what was to become black skin white masks. So, what is the central argument of the text? First-time readers of Black Skin will no doubt be puzzled by the lack of traditional argumentation, and they may even expect that it is a book about how racist French people are, yes, but Black people are as much the object of critique, a point I will return to shortly. There are many interpretations of what Fanon is up to and what readers find interesting. I cannot hope to cover everything that happens in the text, but I would like what I would like to do is give both first time readers and experts a provocative entry into the work. My interpretation is unorthodox, but, you know, I back myself. I think I'm right. (laughs) Black Skin, White mass is fundamentally a book about the alienation of reason. Fanon from the outset claims that the economic foundations of colonial society introduces psychopathologies into all of its inhabitants. This includes the black people or the quote unquote racialized. Fanon approaches the social theory of French Martinican society as a psychiatrist. He was trained in this art of medicine, analyzing its pathogenetic structure. Colonial society, a society divided against itself, shapes both black and white subjects such that, quote, this is Fanon, the white man is locked in his whiteness, the black man in his blackness, end quote, and thus both are afflicted with, quote, double narcissism, end quote. The first order problem of racism is not the irrational hatred of difference or the other. It is the desiccation, the withering away of the conditions for intersubjectivity. Reason for Fanon is essentially the ability to take on and understand the reasons given by other free creatures such as myself. Throughout the book, Fanon continually pleads for understanding and communication. And this is so because Fanon thinks we can only be free insofar as we can develop and express novel reasons for our conduct colonial society practically inverts, and not just ideologically, our conduct such that our behavior is pre-interpreted. This is the struggle of the narrator in the famous chapter 5, The Lived Experience of the Black, where everything the narrator does to be recognized as a free being is interpreted as a feature of his blackness. We might think of this as the problem of stereotypes, where blacks are implicitly associated with criminality, sexual deviance, or cultural backwardness. The cure, and I put that in scare quotes because Fanon's writing as a psychiatrist in some ways, would be for people to meet real blacks and see that the stereotypes are not true. This response, which focuses on ideology, is insufficient insofar as it assumes that the rationalizations of racism emerge from the pathological structures of subjectivity rather than the pathological structures of social life. And this is what I take to be Fanon's central claim about racism. It is not irrational, per se, but is the endless proliferation of rationales that follow from a deeply unequal society. We often talk about racism as a failing of moral character, a type of ignorance, or an irrational mental quirk. But Fanon dramatizes that racism endlessly talks about itself, endlessly gives rationales for why society is the way it is, but that does not mean it is reasonable. Fanon describes racism as attempting to rationalize itself, and thus he implies a distinction between rationality and unequal conditions and what reason would look like under conditions of equality and social freedom. People may not believe racist ideas, but the public space of reasons is flooded with racist rationales that subjects may spontaneously reach for. The practical distortion of social life traps subjects in circles of unreasonable rationalizations. Much like Marx's idea of commodity fetishism, I argue that Fanon offers a social theory of racial fetishism. A quick example of what I mean here, when Michael Brown was murdered by that police officer and the police officer rationalized his actions of how many times he shot him by saying his body bulked up to run through a hail of bullets, we know that human bodies do not do that. And we know that that statement is unreasonable. And yet, This was a spontaneous rationale he offered for his conduct. He may not have believed it, but he understood he had to give some sort of way of rationalizing why he did what he did. And so the question would be to ask, how a society generates such rationales for that type of conduct? Fanon thinks that we are intrinsically reason-giving creatures and that reason is, is integral to our freedom and humanity. We need to be able to give accounts of ourselves and what we are doing to others, who and what we are doing to others who receive these accounts and give us their accounts in return. I'm reminded of our episode with Martin Haglund, where he claimed that we need reason like we need food and water. Fanon clearly thinks the same. Colonial society alienates its subjects from nourishing reason and damns them to the unreasonable rationalities of racism and exploitation. The cure, again in scare quotes, that Fanon offers is the practical struggle to establish the social conditions for intersubjective reason. I want to close with my most polemical interpretation of black skin. You will note that I referred to the narrator of Chapter 5. Most interpreters assume that Chapter 5, because it is written in the first person, is about Fanon's experience with racism— I think Fanon is offering a literary dramatization of the unreasonable rationality of racist culture that is meant to evoke the insight of the reader who has been malformed by bourgeois society. In the introduction, Fanon describes Chapter 5 as a dramatization of, quote, the black man confronted with his race, end quote. He does not say, my confrontation with my race. Indeed, throughout the chapter, the narrator describes transforming into an animal with antennae and pseudopodia, much like Kafka's narrator in The Metamorphosis, which Fanon owned in his library. Much like Kafka and Hegel, Marx, Kierkegaard, all of whom Fanon explicitly draws from, the drama is meant to open our insight into some fundamental truth of our situation. If the colonial situation is one where the capacity for intersubjective reason is so distorted then the indirectness of aesthetic communication may be the only method available. There's much more I want to say, but I've gone on much too long. So now I'll turn it over to the rest of the crew. What did you all think of Black Skin, White Masks?
0: Maybe one place to start, just the title of the chapter itself, right? And the emphasis on lived experience and what lived experience means for Fanon and his analysis. Because... You know, there's a lot of people on the left where the idea of, like, lived experience just, like, gives them the ick, you know? Like, it's just, like, it, it's associated with a kind of navel-gazing, hyper-emphasis on particularity, and it's seen as, like, an, an inhibiting force. Like, focusing on lived experience is seen as something that inhibits solidarity. Um, But Fanon is also... There's also like a very strong universalist message, with the liberation of human beings as such, and and so yeah, I wonder if one place to start would be just to I don't know if you want if you had anything to say about the meaning of this, like how he's using lived experience and his analysis of lived experience. Yeah,
2: it's pretty clear that it's not. I think you're right that oftentimes, like when people invoke lived experience, they they do it in order to like try to root a claim that they want to make in a, either I don't know, phenomenological or like personal subjective. Reality, And in a way, he is giving us a sort of phenomenology here, but it's also one that's impersonal in a sense, right? It's not at all about like what he, Franz Fanon, experienced so much as it is attempting to like articulate what the conditions for intelligibility are in a colonial situation in the, this divided mm. sort of Manichaean world, right? It's not, it's not him saying like, well, I experienced this one time on a train, so therefore it's this is what the yeah. world sort of looks like actually, But there is an an interesting difficulty here, right? Like, how do we navigate that universal in particular? Because it is like a less charitable reading would be like, he's not doing anything more than just extrapolating from his own experience. But I don't think that's what's going on.
1: So the structure of this chapter is interesting so you know the reason why I said I hope that this episode leads new readers and also people who've already read the text to see the text differently um, there's a moment in the the very first paragraph chapter 5 where he says these are the pieces put back together by another man mm-hmm. yeah. and so you know I think some people read this as Fanon almost telling his immediate autobiography of what it is like to be black I, I've already said that my claim is I don't even think Fanon means this for the, for it to be him I think that this is a narration, but even within the text, there is this is this—you know—this retrospective putting together of what this experience means. Why is that important? It means what he's using as lived experience isn't the immediate undergoing of some event. It is actually, you know, time has passed and reason is putting back together what this says about the social situation of France. But it's very strange in the lived experience of the Black is, um, sure, he writes in the first person but there are a whole bunch of other voices in there. There's, you know, Mm -hmm. the mother with her child. There are these disembodied, what I call French liberals saying, oh no, we don't have race prejudice here. Oh no, I'm a great lover of the blacks. And the reason why I described racism as a series of rationalities is the fifth chapter is filled with all the spontaneous rationalizations Mm -hmm. that people have ready to hand Mm -hmm. when anything having to deal with the inequality of French society is raised. And so I think it's actually trying to show if one you be technical that these are the background conditions of how people make sense to one another. And for Fanon, what you're supposed to see is there is no authentic communication happening. It's just a bunch of cliches Mm. bouncing off of one another rather than what he calls authentic communication. And so the last thing I'll say is, remember that chapter five, it's well written, it's one everyone talks about, but sometimes it's as if it's not the middle of the book. The book doesn't end there. Chapter five, the narrator, and I'm going to say this polemically, the narrator's a failure. The narrator fails to, um, to get the freedom. And so there's also a sense in which this is a moment that we're supposed to pass through. Hmm. Not actually stay there and think that you know this is the central argument for freedom.
3: So I actually really like this interpretation because I was having very similar thoughts when I was reading it. So I, I read this probably a few years like it's been several years since I've had a look at this chapter, and I think that I was when I was taught about this or lasted it in a reading group. I was like less attuned to its argumentative structure. It's like people were kind of. Thinking through the psychoanalytic, the phenomenological, the ontological elements of it and pulling out, just kind of trying to pull out the concepts, which I would also like us to do. But I was really struck by the narration of the text where, like, you think it's going to arrive in a place where, like, you find the authentic, almost the Mm -hmm. authentic black reason at the end of it, and you don't. And there's something really important about going through these stages because I, I it can't be just about... I mean, these are certainly things I'm sure that he's thought and experienced, but every stage that he walks through is recognizable. Um, and, and if you've ever spent any time in talking mm-hmm. about debates about race and identity or race and class, they're all prefaced and presaged here. And I actually think the, the one with the back and forth with Sartre is like the most interesting yeah. because it's the most difficult... And I think most people interpret this as a critique of Sartre, but I think it's not a critique. It's a analysis of the experience of arguing with a Hegelian or a Marxist about this, and the despair you feel when you're doing it. Frankly, because they might be right. Like yes. So, yeah. like, the, Sorry, I feel I'm so like, glad
1: you said that. Yes.
3: Like, I feel like I'm feeling the anxiety I have felt myself and watched people feel in dealing with those arguments about like where the social transformation that has to happen and what happens to race. Like I think about all, even not arguments with Marxists, but arguments with liberals like Elizabeth Anderson's book on, uh, the, the imperative of integration. People really don't like that book. Why? Because she says blacks have to change. Whites have to change. We all have to change. And there's something existentially frightening about even liberal imperatives to do the same. And, um, I think something else happens with the Marxist side of the argument as well. So I did get a sense that like it's the, it's the narration of a feeling of a series of phases of, of arguments, um, not mm-hmm. like just about – it's not just about the lived experience of race, which is also there, but the lived experience of making sense of race, if that is what mm-hmm. you meant by mm-hmm. series of rationalities.
2: Mm-hmm. That's well Yeah. Planned. Yeah, I mean, he yeah. says as much at the end of the introduction when he's, like, saying, you know, what's the structure of the book. And he says, like, in this chapter, what's going on, we are wit- we are witness, he writes, to the desperate efforts of a black man striving desperately to discover the meaning of black identity, right? Like, the attempt to, yeah, the attempt to make sense and finding that part of what I think that he's trying to show is like, like you said, all of the debates seem presaged here, but they were presaged for him, right? Like what he's, what he's describing is like the capture in advance of what that meaning is of what is it to have this or that sort of experience to try to assert yourself as a reasonable being or, okay, fine. You won't let me have that. Then I'll be unreasonable. Oh, but that's captured in advance too, right? Like none of it actually Mm -hmm. works, right? It is like, it, it is a pathway mm-hmm. of despair, but unlike in Hegel, we don't get to absolute knowing at the end. We get to just like, well, fuck, I guess we just aren't free. None of us. Like,
0: yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And we, like we get to weeping. Yeah. This like search for recognition isn't going to get us there or the denial of being recognized or the desire to be recognized. You know what I mean? The, it just it seems to me like at the end of the chapter that the whole recognition model as a model for attempting to resolve the pathologies um, of racialization mm-hmm. – It's just not, it just breaks down. And then he pushes towards like, okay, we need a total material reorientation and transformation of society in order to make any of these pathologies addressable. It goes in a revolutionary direction, yeah, I mean, what's
1: really fascinating about Chapter 5, and you know, I'm, I'm glad you all already said it because you know, I'm always picking at this. You know, The narrator, when the narrator realizes, okay, so I can't just be like one of you. I'm going to plunge into the negritude of Senghor and mm-hmm. Cezaire, And that seems like a moment of freedom. Like, like I'm going to bathe in the irrational. Yeah, I am, yeah. I'm cosmic with the harmonies and all of that. And then what happens? Another voice comes up and says, Oh yes, we too in Europe had our irrational phase. You will one day grow out of that, son. And, you know, and, and I think the existential feeling that's being, that's being narrated by the narrator, to use Lillian's language, is, is not just I need to make sense of myself, but I need to feel like my reasons are my own. And to find out that actually they're pre-captured, that they're not even my reasons, they're reasons that have already already fit a pre-made constellation. Yeah, I actually found myself when I got to the SART part, and it starts some um, essay Black Orpheus, where it's like, yeah, the negritude movement is obviously a minor premise in the the movement of class revolution towards the abolition of race. I tend to think that you know what the narrator realizes is even if Sartre is right, even if the narrator agrees, he ought not have said it. I needed to lose myself in this moment and discover this for myself as emerging from my own conduct. And I, I think what's happening here is to, to just put a pin on what Owen said, is that this does end in a moment of failure where this striving for intersubjective recognition is constantly stymied by the disordered society in which this struggle is taking place. And then the question becomes, so how do we understand the society in which this is taking place and what can be done about it? Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, I think the encounter with Sartre is really difficult. It it feels difficult. Like on the page, it feels no. Like, a, a that's where I think you're know, like, Fanon himself is seeping
1: into the text. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was very close intellectually with Sartre.
2: Yeah, and he draws a lot of insight from, I think, especially anti-Semite and Jew, with differences, right? Like, there's a, a really, I think, important insight that he's got at some point where he's discussing anti-Semite and Jew, where Sartre says something like, for the anti-Semite, the, the Jewish person is overdetermined by the idea of their Jewishness, right? Like the what it is that the anti-Semite or what you know an anti-Semitic society thinks about what it is for, to be a Jewish person completely overdetermines their being. And he goes, "That's close to, but not exactly what happens to the black person in a in a racist society, because it's not the idea, but the appearance, right? There's like a way in which the." literal external outward appearance of epidermalization of this like inferiority complex means that he's he says essentially like a jew a jewish person can pass you know i can't i'm not given that opportunity but even so he thinks that there's a lot there like that helps clarify what's going on in the denial of the other's freedom but then we get to black orpheus and he's like Oh, no, dude, like, you're going to tell me that, like, I'm just reduced to, like, you know, what it means to be black or negritude is just the childhood stage. We've got, like, you now, like, a weird stagist interpretation of the sort of implacable dialectical motor of history. And we're going to, like, be transcended into, like, the real universal of the proletariat. And, like, I got yeah. nothing left. Like, fuck. Like, that like, is, like, a sad... So
1: y'all already figured it out? What, what do I have to contribute? Right. Oh, okay. End the book here.
2: <laughs> yeah, no. It's it feels like a moment of like like betrayal. It it really does to mm. me, at least.
1: I also think what's interesting is what's. I promised myself I wasn't going to talk about this, but I'm not quite sure I understand the let's say pessimistic or ontological readings of Fanon, where throughout chapter five he clearly does. Yearn for and believe in the universal humanism, even when he's talking about anti-Semitism, he understands it as but anti-Semitism. It belongs to the same yo know, hatred of humanity, and thus it does involve me. Thus mm-hmm. yo, know, I am called to be responsible for it. And so I don't think that this book makes sense without the background understanding that Fanon thinks that there is either in reality or in potentiality some reasonable form of humanity in which we all can share. And I think that that's also what provokes the despair and the failure of it. That reason is being so impaired and alienated. And yet that is what we need in order to, to experience freedom.
3: I actually would like to clarify some of the different terms. Because I, like I said, I feel like what's really important about this book and why it is so foundational is the several different discourses in which it is taking part which are sort of typical of the the 50s i mean some of that if it it's very familiar on the other hand i don't always understand exactly how they're being used so like i'm most curious about this thing about narcissism so in the introduction when after he says the the essay will attempt to understand the black-white relationship, the white man is locked in his whiteness, the black man in his blackness, we shall endeavor to determine the tendencies of this double narcissism and the motivations behind it. And then later, how can we break the cycle? We have just used the word narcissism. We believe, in fact, that only a psychoanalytic interpretation of the black problem can reveal the affective disorders responsible for this network of complexes. So that's all to say you can see like in the spiraling literature about this, there's the affect dimension, the psychoanalytic dimension. You can There's the existential dimension. There's, there's just so many different routes. But I just feel like what is narcissism doing as a diagnostic in this text? Like mm. it comes out again, and I think in chapter five, but like... What kind of psychoanalytic perspective is this coming from, and then what work does it do?
2: Yeah, that's you a really know. good. It's a
0: really yeah. good question. <laughs> I'm just thinking about. It. I mean, one of the things I think it refers to is the the reflection of yourself back to yourself as substantial and whole, as if the white person or the black per- there is something substantial and whole about a white I- about being white or about being black or black identity or white identity. And so I think like that substantiality and wholeness, like he wants to show that these things are obviously a product of history, that these, these identity categories are intersubjectively mediated, dependent on the way that others are reflecting me back to myself and that we're actually fragmented and fractured, alienated, not whole at all. And the narcissism is like the cheap short circuit attempt to be made whole Hmm. through, I don't know, racial mythology and shit.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say two quick things about it. So one, I think that there is a, I will say, quasi Freudian use of narcissism here. And just, you know, cliff notes of what Freud says about narcissism, and I'm going off of my memory is, it's a stage in childhood development where the child doesn't actually make any distinctions between itself and the world. Mm. So the world is the child, the child is the Mm. world. So the mother is supposed to be a part of the child's needs. And one of the traumatic things of childhood is when the mother... The parent society says, no, you don't get that. And it's reasserted that this is a socially mediated world rather than a world that simply is me speaking to myself. What he seems to be saying here is that you know colonial society is a society that for both the black person and the white person, they don't understand the world as you know, socially mediated. They simply understand the world through their own spontaneous categories and thus can't mm-hmm. actually confront the reasons coming from the other person. Um, The last thing I I will say is that this is a hard thing to say because I think you wouldn't expect Fanon to be saying this, is, but the reason why I also don't think the narrator of Chapter 5 is Fanon is because there's also a bit of a critique of the narrator in Chapter 5, and the critique is the narrator is almost a paranoid subject. The narrator can't actually get into the world. And of course, there are social reasons for this. He described the narrator, described himself as they've amputated my enthusiasm. I can't get to the world. But in, um, I believe it's um, chapter two, where Fanon is reading this um, novel by a black man, and he doesn't like the novel very much, but it's because the black person is so sensitive about their race that they can only think about it. And we can explain that. That doesn't mean that we have to say that they're a bad person, but that's narcissism, that they actually can't um, escape these categories. So the, the line right after what Lillian said, I think this is partially what he's trying to do with making psychoanalysis a part of a social theory to make the human being actionable, is we are aiming for a complete lysis and analysis of this morbid universe, We believe that an individual must endeavor to assume the universalism inherent in the human condition in order to rid themselves of these defects. And so Mm -hmm. he's trying to say that these psychoanalytic sociological pathologies are due to a pathological social world that needs to be overturned. But brass tacks. I think what he's trying to say is that both black and white, they're alienated. They can't truly communicate with one another. And throughout the text, the last thing I'll say is he constantly uses this language of cycle and circle. Even chapter five, he describes himself as being trapped in a vicious circle. That's narcissism, being trapped in the circle of yourself Mm -hmm. rather than being able to authentically engage and cooperate with what is not yourself. Yeah. I think
0: that's also what's going on with the like his account of the desire on the part of a lot of black people to look back to a golden age of like to all kinds of underappreciated aspects of black history. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and even he talks about like African antiquity and the kind of pleasure and joy of like discovering, Oh, there was this great like civilizational advance that nobody takes stock of and, and this attempt to, but I think he's still, it's not like it's un, in an uncomplicated way. He thinks it's bad to something bad about that or wrong, but I do think, at at times it seems like he thinks it still falls into the kind of narcissism and his message seems to be like there there is no self-relation the way we relate to ourselves as black or white or whatever that's going to get it get us out of this vicious circle that's going to get get us out of these social pathologies like you know what I mean it's not uh, a secessionist kind of politics
3: well I mean I think there's two I guess the reason I asked about Narcissism—not the reason. The reason has evolved after your both of your responses, is that I, it seems to me like there's a couple different levels of narcissism you could be talking about. So in the beginning, Will was talking about was it the reification of of race? There's a, there's a mm-hmm. a narcissism in the production of bourgeois society in its own image. So like at the level of the social whole, there is a way in which, as you're saying. Bourgeois society can't understand itself outside of the terms of its own, its own categories, its own terms. So it's self-referential, and what I really loathe about most of the academy at this point is like that. To me, the problem in talking about this, like it's just Western values, is just totally obscuring the social conditions that make this possible. Like mm-hmm. it is because a form of society has, in fact, universalized that it becomes self referential Mm. in this way and in a way the spread of global capitalism is a form of narcissism and like I think you know I wrote a paper once in grad school about object relations narcissism as a way of talking about fetishism so that's like I don't know Mm. that's like one big idea but then the other idea is actually just more psychological which is what is narcissism actually like there's Psychiatrists describe this in different ways, but one common way is to talk about a grandiose ego that becomes that is very vulnerable because like the ego core is not very strong and self-confident. So it overcompensates by having a grandiose ego and therefore is very vulnerable to being hurt. And there are many reasons for this in early childhood development and your relationship with your parents. but like as a description of the experience of living in a racialized society, that sounds about right to me for everyone involved. Like that's, I, 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 um, the the ease with which the, the ego gets, gets punctured and is insecure. And it is a very alienating way of living with other people. Horrible. In fact.
2: Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. 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 No, like a couple of things here. One is like, In one of the sentences that Will just quoted, Fanon uses the word lysis. He's like, we're aiming for like a lysis. And I looked that up because I don't know what what words mean. And looked it up. So it's like a a biological process of like like a cell's dissolution. The dissolution of the membrane of the cell wall that holds it together. The, Mm -hmm. The experience that he's describing is one of yeah the failure of intersubjectivity even being possible so that you're kind of locked in with yourself and there's nothing else but yourself uh, you're not actually mm-hmm. encountering others at all, which is a necessary component he thinks of human freedom in like you know encountering others so one way to answer your question which is really good Lillian is like I think this like imposed narcissism on both sides is this inability to get outside oneself. The other thing that I wanted to, to draw attention to, he says in the beginning, in the introduction, he says the whole book is structured around temporality. I didn't notice that last time I read this, and I was like, whoa, really? What? What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> For real? So, like, the whole book? The whole book? <laughs> what? Like, what does that mean? And then, you know, he, he's very clear that this is first a series of economic relations that is then internalized and epidermalized, right? This, like, inferiority thing. Yeah. It, but very clearly, first an economic thing. And then when we get to the conclusion, he says stuff like, bourgeois society is this bourgeois society produces all these psychopathologies and what he means by bourgeois society is something like when things are ossified when things kind of when there is this inability for like a futural orientation to be possible or something new or open to be to be mm-hmm. possible at all and part of the narcissism here is, is this is what it looks like to be trapped in the past, right? To constantly be looking to the past for, for resources because that's really all you think you've got. But he's saying again and time and again, he's like, the past can't help us here. It can't. Like, what we need is a future. That's what's missing. You know, go to the... And he says, you know, there's like a, a sort of funny line, bleak, you know, gallows humor, I guess, where he's like, look, I wouldn't be, like, mad if we discovered that there was, like, a black philosopher who line. who wrote letters yeah, with Plato. It's yeah. so, like, I wouldn't who be... Like, like yeah. that would be cool, but I don't know how much good that would do to, like, child laborers in Martinique, right? And this is, like, the thing. Uh, it's those economic relations in the present that demand transformation in order for intersubjective relations to become possible and that's why like you know if there's like a sort of moment of critique or several moments i'm sure of things that we could say he's being critical of the narrator in chapter five but one of them is like this person is just looking for the recognition to happen while leaving those economic relations intact and he's sort of like you know what what did you what did you expect you know
1: I actually one I love that you point out the gallows humor because if there's anything also I want our listeners and know those like actually Fanon is quite funny throughout black and white <laughs> mass he does tell jokes obviously they're they're dark jokes and all of that but I I, I think that's also a part of the method because you know, some of it is when you laugh, at least Fanon seems to think it breaks you out of the mold of the the sort of preconceived, predetermined relationships that you um, think through the world. Mm. The line about bourgeois society, I'll just read it out because it's very nice. And for me, bourgeois society is any society that becomes ossified in a predetermined mold, stifling any development, progress, or discovery. For me, bourgeois society is a closed society where it's not good to be alive, where the air is rotten and ideas and people are putrefying. And I believe that a man who takes a stand against this death is, in a way, a revolutionary. And another quick thing I'd like to say, so Black Might Mask, um, that wasn't actually Fanon's original title. I think it was Francis Janson who gave it that title. Originally, the book supposed to be called The Disalienation of the Black Man. And so another thing that I think we could talk about is that, you know, this notion of disalienation is really key yeah. for Fanon. And so this. it's not just disalienation from people's racist ideas. In the conclusion, again, he's saying these things that you wouldn't expect Fanon to say where he's saying, you know, I am not the slave of you know the history of slavery. I have not the right to demand reparations. You might think, wait, wait a second. Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. I thought we're, we're a fan of reparations here in, in the year 2023. But the point is because the 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 theme of this work is time fanon actually really is saying we need to be able to let go of history so that we can make the leap into something new and he's taking leap from people like kierkegaard and Sot and all of that and so it's really fascinating that a lot of what fanon is saying is you know even for the black person you need to be able to let go of you know, what has happened so that you can participate creatively in what could be. And that's why the, um, the beginning epigraph of the conclusion is Marx's 18th premier mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of drawing the poetry mm-hmm. from the future.
0: And let the dead bury the dead.
1: Let the dead bury the dead. And I think for Fanon, he thinks, you can't take responsibility for the world and give reason for the world so long as you are constantly facing backwards at what has been done. I just want to be clear. That is a controversial claim. And <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: other, you know, Africana thinkers certainly saw that that's what he was saying. People like um, Glissant and Césaire had questions about it. But I wanted, I wanted to say that because that is Fanon's argument. So he is making an argument and you can contest it and disagree with it. Well, but yeah. that seems to be what he thinks.
0: And just, just to add to that, like right below that part, he says, I, a man of color, want but one thing. And it's a universal thing. He says, "I want may man never be instrumentalized, right? Like the kingdom of yeah. ends. May the subjugation of man by man, that is to say, of me by another, cease."
3: I love a good Kantian yeah. ending. It just—we can't get <laughs> away from it. It's about the kingdom of, am- get, of ends. He even yeah,
1: mentions,
2: like, yo, the starry sky I have, above. I have this line. Okay. This yeah. got it. He says. I knew it. He says. <laughs> It is not the black world that governs my behavior. My black skin is not a repository for specific values. The starry sky that left Kant in awe has long revealed its secrets to us, and the moral law has doubts about itself. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Again, that's just very funny.
3: (laughs) You know, there's there's something I'm interested in about this idea of how to think about history in order to have a non-alienated future. I think this is what he thinks, and I have always thought this in a way. But I'm, I want to kind of flag it because I think it's worth tending to how counterintuitive it is to contemporary sens- sensibilities. Like what mm-hmm. people mostly think of is restitution, redress, and so on. And um, then we have this sort of moral spiral where immediately people say, well, some things can never be forgiven. And my question is, is the point of justice or freedom Forgiveness, maybe, mm. but I think that, like, he's saying no in a way. And um, that's worth contending with because I, you know, I, I hardly ever talk about my students and I know some of them listen, so I'm sorry. But we had a whole week on historical injustice this week. And I noticed that the interlocutor for the text we were reading is somebody saying that what matters are contemporary injustices and solving them and redressing them. And moving forward into the future, this is like a view people have. And the author we were reading was like, no, no, no. History matters because of the politics of memory, basically. Mm. And it's not just an economic yeah. problem, which is true. But I noticed that none of my students actually picked up on or responded to the argument that the text was actually about, which is that some people are saying that what matters is injustice in the present and finding a way to move forward that was not intuitive to anybody. Nobody defended it. Nobody picked up on it because that's just not, that's not the paradigm right now. Whenever this, the text I'm referring to was written in like 2005 or seven or something. And um, mm-hmm. I think that because we can't see the future anymore, mm. that is like a totally inaccessible set of claims, whether from a liberal or a left-wing or what, like from any ideological direction, it's just not accessible to us so the only thing we have is is redress and restitution, usually on moral grounds and symbolic grounds. And then, interestingly enough, we we affirm immediately that such gestures are not enough. So like the Dutch government just apologized for slavery and everybody like this is fake bullshit, it's not enough, blah, blah, blah. And that's obvi- obviously a fact, but that's like, that's what you get if you can't see the future in a way. Um, there is no redress without the sorry, so called economic yeah. insufficiency of it all. But like there's this there's a lack of common sense going on with Fanon. And I do think it's it's counterintuitive to then double down on the more pessimistic reading of him as if that's what he was saying all along. I think that's a symptom of what can appear or not appear to us today.
2: Yeah, as though like the point of all these arguments is like so stick with the past that you can't do anything about. Like that doesn't seem to be his tenor or his aim at all, right, as far as I could tell.
1: So this is this is another sort of bugaboo of mine. Lily's been putting this in a tract of like, yo know, clearing up phrases. One has bedeviled scholarship for decades. What the fuck does he mean by zone of non-being?
2: Oh, God, the yeah. Thank you. I would, the, I, yeah.
1: Delicious phrase, you know, <laughs> where he's just like, you know, the black cannot enter what he calls that, that veritable hell, that zone of non-being. Well, here's my reading of what's going on there. The zone of non-being – I'm being really reductive here, but I just want to be polemical – is actually good. The zone of non-being is the place of freedom for him. He says where that. Where you str- – hmm? He says that. I know he does. I know I mean, I, I like, know. It's, I it's, know it's funny that
2: even. just like saying like a thing – like he said a, a phrase would be polemical, but but you're not wrong. <laughs> yeah, but I,
1: again, I back myself and the text is there because you know, for him, the zone of non-being is where you – generate space from all the contingent determinations of being, and allow yourself to, you know, he calls this, you know, this sort of upsurge of freedom, to recreate yourself, you know, what he calls freedom. And this links up with chapter four, which I didn't have you all read, where he's saying the point of this psychological, psychiatric work is not so that the, the subject turns inward again, but that they realize that, no, what's necessary for their freedom is a transformation of the world as such. Mm. And so, you know, I think some people read the zone of non-being as, you know, that's where black people are because they're they're not. They are not being. But then why is he saying near the end the black man is not no more than the white man. He thinks that uh, we are not. Mm-hmm. And this is look, it's existentialism 101. Yeah. It's Sartre, it's Beauvoir that we are not essentially anything. What we are are this, you know, the the openness of engagement and creativity of what we can do together towards the future. And so I actually think it's really interesting that how Fanon is read also changes given the sort of social ideological conditions in which the text is approached. And so we live in conditions where it seems as if actually bourgeois society more than ever has won. And we are, you know, plunged into this narcissism where, you know, we cannot see a way forward. And all we can do is be stuck in the past. And perhaps, again, that is the way and Fanon is wrong. But that's not not what he thinks. He thinks, you know, our freedom comes from he uses the french it's not translated well here of dépouillement which is you know, literally stripping, stripping away, the skin yeah. away so that you know, we can you know, touch the world again with reason rather right. than with the historical
2: rationalities we've inherited yeah it's very strange to read the zone of non-being line in like a purely pessimistic mode because it in order to do that you have to completely ignore the the con- the existentialist context of like, you know, the, all the work that was being done by people like Sartre and Beauvoir with whom he's like directly engaging for whom like negation is like a movement of freedom, right? Like a, the essential non-being of human being is like its ability to transcend its given condition or situation.
0: Their lack like, of essence. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: And, the problem of you know, of of racism but i think he thinks of your know, broader bourgeois capitalist colonial society is it only talks about essences hmm. it essentializes everything hmm. And it, you know, it tries to essentialize your know, race, essentialize hierarchies, essentialize what freedom is. And when you start thinking it that way, it just all feels very claustrophobic. And that is why you know, almost rightfully so, the narrative chapter five is so paranoid. There's like nowhere to move. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's no mm-hmm. place to go. Mm-hmm. Everything is already explained, already you know, in place. Nothing to do but just go along with the ride.
3: One of the little funnies that really like got me giggling just now, but also when I was reading, is when he says, and there's no point sidling up crab-wise with a mea culpa look <laughs> instead insisting it's a matter of salvation of the soul. Just like I had this idea of like, you know, the little crab. <laughs> yeah, it's just like... <laughs>
1: okay. Apparently in the, in the French, it's that that's actually, um, in the French, it's like a Creole bit of jargon he's using there. Oh. And so it, it is like, it's meant to, I think... People Martinique would have found it funny when reading it in French. But I'm glad. I think it's also funny in English. <laughs> yeah, or just somebody image, who watches yeah.
3: like crab reels on Instagram. would be, uh, <laughs> That too. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay, so I actually wanted to get, so because I'm in the interest of, uh, and you guys can tell me if you want to move on to something else, but I asked about narcissism and psychology. I also, I, I'm like curious about how he introduces ontology because we were talking about the existentialist way of thinking about this and there's a point where he says this is not possible to resolve by ontological means and I'm trying to find the the passage I think it might be the beginning of chapter five
1: but any ontology is made impossible in the colonized and acculturated society.
3: Yeah, so I can see where this other reading comes from, because it says it's not possible to resolve it by means of ontology. And then, you know, I, the materialist, think, here, 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 Fanon, I agree. But then... It says, ontology does not allow us to understand the being of the black man, and it ignores the lived experience, and then some people will argue that the situation has a double meaning, not at all, the black man has no ontological resistance in the eyes of the white man, so that's when I can see you see that he means ontology not in the usual sense but then he also says it prohibits any ontological explanation. And I can imagine reading that saying, no, that's because the ontological problem goes even deeper than you realize mm-hmm. or something. Um, so I'm just I'm wondering, like, what work does ontology do in this in this chapter?
2: I'll just point out that, like, also at the beginning of chapter five, he has one of those lines that I love because it's an identification. He says something like the people that I'm talking about right now, and I forget who it is exactly that he's describing, he says, they're metaphysics or, less pretentiously, their costumes. <laughs> and it's like... Yeah, it's like, thank you for explaining that. It's like, yeah, clear. I would have thought something completely different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I think that that's actually a really important moment, right? Like, the the stuff that we're talking about as metaphysics or as ontological, like, for him is like, no, this is just a matter of, like, how we've structured our lives and, like, what it is that our forms of intelligibility are that we've inherited and how we, like, relate to one another or not. Like, that's what we mean. I don't see any reason to mm-hmm. think with him that that would be unchangeable. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know what yeah. I, mean? mm-hmm. I think he says at the beginning like in the introduction that he was that he makes a methodological claim that he's gonna do this thing called sociogeny and he says I'm not gonna do ontogeny yes, yeah. I'm not gonna do phylogeny I don't know what phylogeny is yeah but, I was wondering uh,
2: if you could clarify some of this because this is coming out of engagement with Freud I think
1: Yes, so he's getting that not just from Freud, but you know he's he's cribbing from some um, biological literature. So ontogeny mm. is dealing uh, with the etiology or the development of the individual. Phylogeny is you know, the development of the species. But you know when he says sociogeny, and it's unclear. It seems like actually Fanon kind of just invented this word. Um, <laughs> you, know, you can't really find it anywhere else. So he's just like, yeah, I'm doing sociogeny. <laughs> nice. You know, understand that as um, you know. He He's trying to understand, you know, look, I, the best way I understand it is, you know, Marx, the historical mediation and development of the human creature in its engagement with um, nature and how nature impacts the creature. So he's not interested in the individual. He doesn't, he's not interested in, you know, the sort of Darwinian evolution mm. of the species. He thinks what makes the human being distinct is that they produce society and society shapes and forms them. And so he's trying to, you know, understand that relationship. And just really quickly, I actually like that Lynn pointed out that line about ontology does not allow us to understand the being of the black man the translator has that since it ignores the lived experience, he actually doesn't say lived experience there. He says existence. And so since it ignores existence hmm. and why that's important is, you know, I think for Fanon, ontology is, you know, it's too abstract. It engages with what the world is absent these historical relations that make up the world. now. I, I get it here in 2023, we mean something maybe different by ontology, but that's what he's getting at, that there isn't a distinct black world and white world. It is you know, a world of relationships, yeah. and ontology can't tell you about
0: that. Like, isn't he also saying that ontology is too deterministic then if he's opposing it to existence? Like it, it doesn't yeah. account for the surging of freedom.
1: I think that that's what he means. I think, yeah, ontology is, an, is another way of trying to erect um, a static image of, of humanity in human life, such that you start to get black ontologies well, and, and white that's ontologies. Where the pessimism,
0: that, that's where the pessimism comes in, is doing racial ontologies. You said it, not me, but
1: you know, I, I don't hear anything to agree with there, but yes. So he's, he wants to talk about existence and I hate to do that annoying thing where you talk about, it's the Heideggerian thing of talking about, well, existence etymologically, but here it makes sense. Existence, existare, literally standing out, standing into the world. You know, um, So it's, it's about not being locked in with oneself, but being out there in the world with others.
0: Yes, that's interesting. Ontology both doesn't account, like it, it fails on two fronts, like not to account for the relational structure of the production of subjects and the historical structure of it and then the element of subjective freedom. Yeah. So it's bad. Yeah. So it's bad. No bueno. No bueno. Yeah, it doesn't take much to convince me that ontology is not good. But
3: <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Some, But something is, maybe there's something silly of me to say, but I feel like, when people start using that word, obviously there are just lots of different ontologies. Like I think, okay, you're talking about the the kind of things that exist. Okay. And like, I can see the, the reasoning behind saying like, okay, you know, these socially constructed things called races exist. So in in an ontological sense, that just would be a truism. If they exist, then they exist and they're a kind, they're a social kind or whatever. But then it's like, there, surely, this is, you can't just like decide that by fiat, that that's like the basic unit of analysis. Like, mm. why not processes? Why not relationships? Like, we have all different kinds of ontologies. And like, mm. that's why it feels too abstract to me. Like, if I say the world is make, made up of different kinds of things than you think, and mine's more fundamental than you, then like, we have an argument already. And it just strikes me that that argument has to take place at a much higher level of abstraction in order to decide whether or not that's a helpful way of talking about race. Yeah. So that's what like leaves me confused about much of this is like, surely if we sit down and think about it, you could think about it that way. But then also you have to be responsive to why, why shouldn't I think about ontology in a in a different way, like why yeah, why can't I say that yeah. the nature of thing is something else or the objects of analysis are are different kinds of things than than that? so i I think that's I don't know. that's what, what I got out of it. Like it's just too like and then you end up debating about that, and then you're not talking <laughs> about racism now doing, anymore. Now we're doing meta ontology. yeah, then you're doing meta ontology. And I don't know, like I said before, I'm just like into the ontic I'm like staying there most of my most of my time.
0: Yeah, I think Fanon is too.
1: I was about to say, I, I yeah. think you know, he he's quite all right there. And he thinks there's plenty of complexity and um, distinctions to make uh, in that realm. And I'll just say it again. I think it's really fascinating in chapter five that so much of it is about the available reasons we have ready to hand for making sense of social life. And you need to be able to get some sort of view to see that those reasons aren't self-evident, that this is you know, evidence. Mm-hmm. of actually um, you know, an incredibly pathological society that actually cannot come to terms with itself and cannot take responsibility for itself. I mean, so much of chapter five is almost this you know, argument of you know, the systemic bad faith that mm-hmm. you know, subjects you know, are committed to. Mm-hmm. And it isn't because of a lack of moral responsibility or character. Um, he describes in the introduction as it's an existential deviation imposed on us. And I think that there's a lot there to think about and to think about how we come to reason and you know, what our rationales are. And I think he's using reason as a, a position of normative critique, that you know, it is a vision of a type of society that is not only equal materially, but you know, is equal in what makes us free creatures, which is giving reasons and taking reasons on, that, you know, and that's what allows us to cooperate and be creative and invent.
2: This is great. So I was hoping we could like maybe as we get close to the end here, that helps like link up Mm -hmm. a couple of things for me. Because I was hoping we could talk a little bit about his like stated desire for a new humanism and like the relationship between that and this project of disalienation. I like the way that you've been putting this will. And maybe I could ask you to elaborate a little bit more on it because I hadn't, you know, whenever people talk about alienation and this is like always the critique you get, especially coming out of like the French milieus and like the 60s onwards if you know there's a problem of alienation it's a question about alienation from what and can you do that without positing an essence, you know, and then are we, you know, early, young Marx is, you know, talking about phasing, and, oh, no, we're alienated from our species. Being. We're, we're back in romanticism. Oh, yeah, yeah, like that's that. always the like, worry, yeah. right? So the question is, what is it that we're alienated from such that disalienation dis- is like a project that, you know, is something that we should find desirable and, you know, without falling back into these sort of essentializing traps. And your pitch, mm-hmm. as far as I'm understanding is... It's alienation from or of reason, actually, as a constituent Hmm. feature of what it is to be human. Sorry, sorry, we're doing a little bit of essentializing human beings are essentially reasonable or ought to be or ought to be or maybe ought to be. be. I'm not sure. Or need
0: or need need, or need to be I think need to be. Yeah. Yeah, So I don't know. There's like
2: a lot there. I'm really curious about what you all think about. Yeah, how to make sense of disalienation and this problematic of alienation from what?
1: I will just say, in order to kind of head off at the past, like, look, I, I've i read all the things, and, you know, sorry, sorry, Gil. I, I've read the Althusser, the critique of humanism, <laughs> I and I know that it's all this, you know, isn't it so naive to think that there's some human nature, you know, when actually the human is constitutively incomplete and mediated? And I think Fanon's like, yes, we are constitutively incomplete and mediated. That's why we need reason, oh, nice. because we cannot actually stand on our own. There is no actual essence um, in, in the sort of ontological, um, ahistorical sense awaiting us. And so the only thing I'll be able be able to say, because, you know, again, so much is about the future, the new humanism isn't a return to our human essence. It is actually, you know, the, the creation of a novel form of life of intersubjective reason. Mm-hmm. And so it would look... Like something that we have not yet seen. And so the alienation, strikingly, the alienation is a form of radical completeness. You are stuck Mm. in your narcissism, you're stuck in being, you're stuck in fullness, rather than he ends with one of these puzzling questions. that, And, you know, when I first read this in my more quote, unquote, radical phase, like, Dude, what the fuck are you talking about with this question of, you know, wasn't my freedom given to me to create the world of you? Nah, man. Your, your freedom's for yourself. You're <laughs> a radical. But no, I think he's saying I need others. The, I need others in the world. The mm-hmm. world can't just be for me because that's actually what we have in putrefying bourgeois society. So I think the new humanism is, you know, something that has not yet emerged. It's a task rather than, you know, an excavation of what's been buried by bourgeois society.
0: I I think that's right. But there are moments where I'm a little confused because it does seem like there's a stronger, like, I don't think he's doing this return to our human essence thing, but it does seem like there's a stronger normative standard in the background. Like I gave you the one example of the the non-instrumentalization thing, like the kind of kingdom events, the call for a kingdom events at the end, my language, not his. But he also at one point says, and this is exactly this is what he says: he says genuine disalienation will have been achieved only when things, in the most materialist sense, right, have resumed their rightful place, right. So this emphasis on this on there's something that needs to be resumed. We have totally distorted, uh, and I don't, and I, I'm open to the idea that yeah, it is, and I like this argument that it is reason that reason is totally distorted and mutilated under existing material conditions, and that things need to be put back in place i don't know we i I honestly don't know what to make of the those moments where it does seem like there is a pretty robust notion of like things are wrong Mm -hmm. and they need to be set right and like i'll actually be kind of straight up about what it looks like to set them right
1: what if and if liam is listening to this You should read his white psychodrama piece. It's actually really good. But he has this really nice line. What makes our society distinctive in the psychopathologies is the dominant ideology is something like equality. And yet the social conditions do not adhere to that ideology. Hmm. And you know what? The more things change, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, Fanon at France at this time is not avowedly racist. It is the place of liberté, égalité, fraternité. UNESCO in the fifties has released this whole idea that race doesn't exist. You know that you know it's all about universalism, and yet the material facts hmm. do not um, are not synchronized to to this idea. And so I think the normative claim of reason is that you know there is something severely on its own terms contradictory in bourgeois society and it it affects uh, the fact that we give rationales for our conduct that doesn't actually link up with what our
2: putative commitments mm-hmm. are. Yeah. And he says things, too, at the same at the same time, like the, the analysis remains materialist or the, the argument, the thrust remains materialist because he says things like and when people go out there and struggle against this ossified bourgeois world, right. it's not because they like they thought about it for a while and they're like, oh, abstract right?' turns out to require that things look differently. It's because there's hunger and exploitation. Right? It's because there's this like because they cannot breathe because they cannot.
1: He breathe. says,
0: yeah. Yeah. In multiple senses. Yeah,
3: I mean, I really fuck with the critique and rescue of reason. I'm like very bored yeah. with critiquing and not <laughs> rescuing reason. And and I think that I like,
0: yeah. yeah, I, like I mean, cool. I'm, a, I'm a fan of reason. Reason's
3: dope. I just I'm, don't mm-hmm. really see what we're all discussing if without. I mean, there's something profoundly nihilistic about it. And like, I just, I you know, everyone always wants to like defend their favorite critiques of reason. Like, they're not really that. Maybe they're not. I don't know. What am I what do I know? I have my own area of specialization and the deep reads into some people that critique reason. I I who, who the fuck knows. But in in any case, mm-hmm. I just feel like striving for like a society in which reasons become intelligible and a form of striving based on reasons becomes intelligible seems pretty good to me. I feel like you know, I feel the way about it that Charles Mills once did about like liberalism and equality and stuff. He's like, you know, equality of opportunity, free civil liberties sounds good to me, man. Like, let's proceed. <laughs> why not? Um, let's get some reason going. Let's I try feel, reason. I feel this I feel the same way about reason. It's like I get I get it. I get it. Reason is hypocritical, partial, um, cynical. There's lots of pathologies, but also Ideally, I think there's like uh, some good – we could be offering good and better reasons to to do good and better things. And I, I, I guess that kind of – that lane of critique just sort of ran into a cul-de-sac right. f- for, for me. And I, I read Fanon and it actually feels extremely refreshing in 2023 yeah. to yeah. think about that stuff without being too jaded.
2: Yeah, like that distinction that, that you drew, Will, in this regard, right, between what does it look like to give reasons – in a reasonable as opposed to an unreasonable world. And it just, you know, the, the claim, I think one of the ways to understand the the claim that Fanonio is making is like, we live in an unreasonable world. It, yes. It's, you know, reason, reasons and rationales are circulating all the time that don't make this reasonable. We should mm-hmm. be living in a reasonable world. That would be better. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And I think the last thing I'll say in closing, Joe Owen, you pointed back a couple of times to Fanon talking about the non-instrumentalization of man. He Fanon thinks about this notion of you know human beings being reduced to mechanisms a lot, and you know I'm not doing this thing where um, if Fanon talks about Marx that you know that means he's cool, but. He is thinking about Marx. He's thinking about living uh, within an alien force that only sees you as an instrument for its circulation of value rather than the value of freedom. And it seems to me that that's, you know, that's at least one thing he's picking up from Marx, which is, you know, the actual self-activity of people rather than people being the activity of mm-hmm. um, distorted form of life that is, that is of them but not for them. Dig it. All right, that does it for us today. New episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. Also check us out on YouTube for videos and live streams. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you and we're really grateful. Today's new patrons are Matt Fluck, Joel Miller, Alex McKeever, Taylor Rogers, Elliot S, KG, Eric Anderson, Edward Ponte, Lee Nelson, HW, G, Navin, D, Jack Ahrens, Kali Jarvanen, Jesse Berlin, John Champagne, L.S., Joe Drexel-Drice, Gabrielle Galini. Thank you all very much. If you, too, like what we're doing, want to support the show, please go to our website, leftofphilosophy.com, and click the support button. Patrons get access to exclusive content like locked episodes, bonus videos, and access to our Discord server. You can also buy some What's Left of Philosophy merch from the store linked on our website. Follow us on Twitter at Left and don't forget to leave us good reviews and comments on your podcast app. With that, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.
0: Peace. Bye-bye. Bye.